Welcome back to Athens' favorite history podcast, Is Is This Too Niche? niche? We're your hosts. I'm Jada. And I'm Zoe. And this week, we are going to be talking about the history of books and libraries. Exciting. Yeah, it sounds boring, but I promise it's not. So yeah, first I'm going to kind of do how we did in the gardens episode where we like look at some famous libraries. Cool. And then I'm going to be talking about the history of books and stories and important books and why this matters today because it does matter today very much so as you will see. Yes. So history is divided between prehistory and history, obviously. Prehistory refers to a time before written language, and our notions of the people of prehistory are usually pretty misguided. We think of them as like primitive cave people, but we would be nowhere without them, and they may have not been able to keep written records, but that's not to say that they didn't have their own way of documenting things. The earliest attempts to tell stories may be found on the walls of caves or etched or carved onto animal bones. But prehistory wasn't just these cave people. The early beginnings of ancient civilizations such as Mesopotamia or Greece also existed and flourished throughout prehistory. In the Minoan civilization on Crete, the people had a highly developed sense of urban planning and even built complicated palace complexes long before the Mycenaeans arrived and brought them linear A and B, which was the earliest form of writing in ancient Greek history. Of course, we know that the Mesopotamians had cuneiform and the Egyptians had hieroglyphs but what did they do with these languages? Good question. Cuneiform was invented under the Sumerian civilization around 2600 BCE in Mesopotamia. It was written on clay tablets which were then left to dry and could be stored and preserved. Earliest uses of these tablets were mostly administrative but in the first libraries appeared 5,000 years ago in this area and they would store these administrative records, but eventually they began to contain much more. The Library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, hosted a wide variety of cuneiform tablets, even some of literary character. The Enuma Anu Anil, which I mentioned in an earlier episode, was a guide to astronomy and astrology, and it was stored in this library. It also contained the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is one of the first ever stories. This library was organized in a way that that we would find our libraries to be organized today. Publishers would imprint information on the spine of the tablet so that when stored vertically, it could be identified. The library was built by its namesake, Assyrian Emperor Ashurbanipal, and he left an inscription warning that anyone who stole his tablets would be cast down and erased by God, which is pretty intense but also hypocritical considering that most of his collection of tablets was stolen from lands that he conquered. Wow. Yeah. The ancient Egyptians used papyrus, which grew along the Nile, rather than clay tablets. They were the first to construct paper-like pages. They would weave the stems of papyrus together and then flatten them. Greeks adapted this and added a wooden element that the paper could be wrapped around for storage. Greeks and Romans invented reusable wax tablets, which consisted of wax melted and dried on wood, which could then be carved into and then reused, like an etch-a-sketch. The first ever <laughs> The first ever book written on paper was made in China using mulberries, hemp, and bark. These natural materials would have been mixed together to form a mass that was then pressed and dried into and dried to become paper which was known as leaf ink would be transferred onto paper using woodblock prints and then put together into folios so let's go through some libraries of the ancient world and then move on to books in ancient china it was believed that the mythical philosopher and founder of taoism laozi was the earliest book bookkeeper in china's history the first evidence of libraries in china goes way back to the 16th to 11th centuries bce these libraries would have been more so been used as storehouses for administrative documents, but historians were able to maintain and practice scholarship in these libraries. In the year 213 BCE, the emperor Qin Shi Huang, who you might recognize as the one associated with the terracotta army, set out to burn the majority of the books published before his time. He did this because he didn't want his own reign to be compared to those before him, 
Certain books pertaining to subjects such as agriculture, astronomy, or medicine were allowed to remain, but otherwise a mass burning of books took place, and he even buried 460 scholars alive for owning forbidden books. It's crazy, like, how... Like, that reflects to, like, when the Christians would burn. Like, even in our fairies episode, when they, like, diminished the history of fairies so that their power was still strong. Like, it's weird how those things just, like, coordinate. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy. I will discuss the burning and banning of books a little bit later. Cool. Because it's very important. Mm -hmm. But luckily, after Qin Shi Hong did all this, the Han Dynasty reversed the book banning policy and established three imperial libraries. Woodblock printing was adapted in Asia, and it was an advanced and important way of producing texts. Even in Korea, it was used to reproduce Buddhist documents. In Persepolis, the capital of ancient Persia, the first books were used to keep records, as in most of these ancient cultures. At Persepolis, archaeologists have uncovered what is believed to have been the Library of Persia, which, based on the fact that it would have contained pretty much all of the administrative documents of that civilization, was the backbone of their society. It contained works in three languages, Babylonian, Old Persian, and Elamite, and it is possible that the tablets were transferred from Persia to Egypt during Alexander the Great's reign, but we'll get into that later. In Isfahan, Iran, the Sarie was supposedly a library used to store important books and manuscripts of the ancients. However, the remains of this library have never been found. It's Mm. possible that when the library at Baghdad was constructed centuries later, scholars transferred the contents of this ancient library over, but it's remained a bit of an archaeological mystery. That's kind of cool. Yeah. That is cool. (laughs) Around 100 BCE in India, bookbinding was developed. These early books were sutras and would have been written on palm leaves, which were split down the middle, dried, rubbed with ink, and then bound with twine. The format of books really depended on what culture you were a part of. In some places, we had tablets and others scrolls. It wasn't until much later that books began to look like the way they do today, but we'll get into that later. In Greece and Rome, the history of libraries is extensive. As I mentioned, the earliest written languages in Greece were linear A and B, which eventually developed into ancient Greek. It wasn't until centuries later, however, that personal libraries began springing up. Around the 5th century BCE, during the classical period, written books would have found themselves a place in the personal homes of the wealthy. At this point, it was more of a marker of status than an attempt at scholarship, because even people who owned private libraries weren't often literate. Hmm. So they're just like, hey, look at all these books that I can't read. In Rome, Augustus and Julius Caesar popularized public libraries. Rome's first public library was established by Asinius Polio under Julius Caesar's instruction. The goal was to rival the Library of Alexandria, and this new library was known as the Anla Libertasis, and it set the standard of dividing works between Greek and Roman. Patrons of the library had access to scrolls and could have checked them out and read them, as we do today. That's sick. Kind of cute. Yeah. Kind of fun. Most early libraries were entirely theological. Early libraries were subject to censorship. Sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. But eventually, philosophical works such as those by Plato and Aristotle became popular. Okay, this is the library you've all been waiting for, the Library of Alexandria. This was the most significant library of the ancient world. It was established under the Ptolemaic dynasty, which were a, which was a Greek dynasty ruling Egypt. And it was the center of learning from the 3rd century BCE until... Question mark? Yeah. We aren't really sure when, how, or if the library was even destroyed. But I will discuss that 
momentarily. The Library of Alexandria has been regarded as this like mythic universal library that contained all of the knowledge of the ancient world. And thus, when it was infamously burned to the ground, all of the knowledge was lost and it was this huge tragedy. But this is kind of a huge misconception. It's unclear how or if the library was intentionally destroyed, and even if it was, at this point in history, so many copies of pieces of writings had been copied and spread around the world that we didn't really lose all the knowledge of the ancient world. In fact, when Ptolemy established the library, he acquired books for it by demanding that every visitor to the ports of Alexandria hand over the books that they'd brought with them. He would then have the books copied, and he would return these copies to the owners of the books and keep the originals oh, for the library. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So pretty much like every book in the library. Is a copy. Yeah. No, the originals were in the library, but the oh. copies still existed elsewhere. But they ga- So they gave the copies back to the people yeah. who had the originals? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's shady. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, um, I want to keep like, my <laughs> copy of the book. Wait, wait, I annotated that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was actually for English class. <laughs> I need that. I wonder what their process was for, like, copying it. I'm sure it was sent to, like, scribes who worked in the library who would just, like, copy yeah. it by page by page. Like, how, I would like how monks did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying we should just join a convent and copy yeah. books for a living. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah, in this way, many copies existed of the works that were stored in the library. It's unclear of how many books exactly were contained, but it's between 40,000 and 700,000, which is a huge range, but different sources tell us different things. The library was divided into two parts, the museum and the serifium, or the inner library, and I'm definitely pronouncing that right. There are a few theories as to what happened to the Library of Alexandria. One theory suggests that Julius Caesar accidentally burnt it while at war with his rival Pompey, but according to accounts from this battle the damage done to the library wouldn't have been enough to destroy it another theory is that muslim conquerors destroyed the library but this would require that they destroy jewish and christian texts which were considered holy texts under islam so it's likely that they didn't another theory suggests that the library wasn't burnt at all it just suffered due to neglect over time the archaeological record only suggests that the library existed at one point and ceased at another Otherwise, mm. we have no real evidence of what exactly happened to Aliens. It. Yeah. Just kidding. Probably. That's the likely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some sources have alluded to it being burnt, which is why we reference it as that, as such. But more often than not, the dates are skewed, and it's incredibly difficult to determine what or when things happened. All we know is that this massive museum slash library would have been a sight to behold, and I'm jealous that I don't get to see it. Yeah, that would have been really cool. I have two more libraries to cover before we get into the juicy stuff. Oh, yeah. The University of Sankor was the ancient center of Muslim learning in Timbuktu. It is rumored to have been established by Mansa Musa, who is at one point the richest man in the world, even compared to today's standards, who ruled oh, wow. over yeah, who ruled over the Mali Empire. He actually destroyed the um, economy of Egypt because when he w- this is like ancient ancient times mm-hmm. because when he he like did a tour all over Africa just to give out money and he gave out so much money in Egypt that it just completely ruined the economy and like inflated everything oh my god yeah but that's kind of funny yeah he had good intentions yeah he tried he was the Mr. Beast of (laughs) the ancient world The university was composed of three mosques, and its library had the largest collection of books in Africa since Alexandria, which is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Timbuktu was a huge center of trade in North Africa, and so the university would have seen much exchange and been a good place for cultural exchange in terms of books. Next up is my beloved, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. I won't go into depth on this because I already discussed it in the astrology episode, but this library was established in the 800s under the Abbasid dynasty. It contained Persian, Indian, and Greek manuscripts on math, science, astronomy, medicine, philosophy, etc., and it lasted until 1258 when the Mongols sacked Baghdad. Legends say that the river 
tigress was stained black with ink from the books being thrown into it during the sacking. I've, I've heard of this. I would have loved to see this library in its time because while the Western world was plunged into a dark age, these Islamic scholars were understanding the world in an advanced way that pushed us into the future. Now we're talking about books. Early stories existed in the form of tales such as the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Iliad and the Odyssey. The first ever, ever novel was the Tale of Genji, which was written by a noblewoman in Japan. In Korea, movable type was invented as an advanced way of printing and was used, like I said, to reproduce Buddhist texts. And I know that I just mentioned that Europe was undergoing the Dark Ages, but it is actually quite a common misconception that all artistic and intellectual activity was halted during the medieval period. I around, mean, how could it? Well, yeah. Around the year 600, picture books began to spring up around Europe in the form of illuminated manuscripts. We are quite familiar with those, aren't we, Jay? Yes, we are. <laughs> They were elaborately decorated books combining the written word with pictorial decorations and designs in the margins. Book of Hours? Book of Hours. Monks would practice bookbinding and transcribe manuscripts. One of the most interesting developments from this time was the development of a certain type of story. You may be familiar with Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. Part of this work is Dante's Inferno, which tells the tale of Dante himself traveling through hell accompanied by the Roman poet Virgil. Descriptions of hellish punishments of the damned seem to be of interest to people as more stories like this became popular. Les Visions du Chevalier Tondel, or the visions of Tondel the Knight, told the story of a knight who passes out during a feast and has a vision of himself being led through hell. Oh my gosh. Shout out Northern Renaissance or... Exactly. Simon Marmion illustrated this book and depicted a variety of strange and unusual punishments of the damned. And you can see the pictures on Instagram. It's pretty funny. Yeah, there's like a stew. That, like, <laughs> there's like this one drawing of like a bunch of people just like sitting in this boiling water being turned into stew or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah. There seemed to be a morbid fascination with these punishments. Even Hieronymus Bosch depicted a similar concept in his third panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights, which shows his vision of how hell and his um interpretation of what kind of punishments would have been enacted on the offspring of adam and eve mm -hmm. it's fun stuff so fun yeah in 1454 johannes gutenberg in germany built the first ever printing press he printed the gutenberg bible much to the dislike of the church this was an issue because up until this point the bible would have either been very expensive or only printed in latin which at this point was only really understood or at least at this point only really the clergy was fluent in reading latin so Gutenberg allowed the Bible to be printed in the vernacular and mass printed, which caused problems because it meant that the average person could now interpret the Bible however they wanted, which would have made the church's role much less powerful. And they needed to have that grasp on society. They were fighting for their lives out there in the 1400s. Like mm -hmm. it was Reformation central. It was not, <laughs> not good for the church. As I said, Reformation movements were threatening the power of the church as well. So attempts to halt the production of these Bibles were made, but printing prevailed and and the mass printing of books made literature much more accessible to the public. So thank you, Gutenberg. Yes. The first ever book cover appeared in 1832. Up until that point, books would have been bound with metal or wood, sometimes leather. But designed book covers appeared during the 19th century. At the same time, the invention of the Penny Dreadful came about, which were books that were worth one penny and told like horror stories. And since a penny would have been an expensive price for a book at the time. Damn. I wish. <laughs> um, I would spend all my pennies on books. 
people would share their penny dreadfuls and thus the first book clubs were created that's so cool also during the 19th century publishers invented hardcover books aimed at wealthier consumers as an avid hater of hardcover books this just proves my point okay so i (laughs) i am an avid hater of hardcover books too but i have kind of turned into a liker of hardcover books specifically because i love how they look on my bookshelf okay that's fair see i think paperback are still better on the bookshelf i mean i i buy both the paperback and the hardcover version of any book that i like okay so i feel like i'm supporting both sides but i would rather be reading a soft cover barnes and noble have like these soft like leather bound hardcovers that i like Mm -hmm. and of course like the barnes and noble classic hardcovers are great yeah but it's always gonna be paperback for me i like breaking the spine of my books me too because i need to like fully see the whole page yeah i don't like my hands hurt when i read because i'm like yeah holding the page open the whole time it's like super hardcover just makes it i know hardcover just makes it so much worse because it's like you're working out and i have have a hardcover i hate when the new books come in hardcover because when i was first reading a qatar and the last book is like 800 pages and it was hard it's like impossible to open no mine broke off the spine completely like it's ruined but mm-hmm. I keep it because yeah. of memories, yeah. you know? Well, no, I like to see that a book has been loved. Yeah. Like, when it's kind of beat up a little bit. But I'm like, I hate hover, hardcover. I will yeah. wait until the book comes out in paperback. I hate when they only sell, like, hardcover books for, like, the first few months that a book comes out. I hate that, too. And and then it's, like, they're more expensive still. Yeah, like, I hate that, too. But the I've noticed, like, the paperback books are beginning to be, like, in the 20s. That's but like, they have guys. to be because they're paying for rent. They're paying... I, <laughs> I am a full supporter of not going on amazon for books and i know you okay. shop on amazon for books and it's i do it's because we don't have a bookstore here that's yes worth it. yeah but you could also order from birds and nobles because they're they're paying to be there that's but true. amazon's only paying to ship that's true amazon is like trying to take over the they book have to market. pay for electricity i do not support taking over the book market no i, love I agree bookstores. i love like i go to barnes and noble and i know that i'm gonna spend a lot of money yeah but it's fine you i just would, accept i mean i would like it to be cheaper barnes and noble never has sales either which gets on my nerve all i'm saying is that it should be the book market needs to be reformed a little bit i think yeah yeah amazon shouldn't be allowed to sell books as much as it pains me to say as the only reason that barnes and noble is so expensive is because they're trying to like compete with amazon and it's like causing problems for everyone well they're also paying for the like electricity yeah no no no, i guess Yes. Like, they're not just competing with Amazon. No, I know. I, I'm a, listen, Amazon is competing with them. I got a four, Barnes and Noble I got a four on microeconomics. I know how economics works. I understand. Ew, I hate that. I understand this situation. I'm, I am a Barnes and Noble supporter for the most part, but when it comes down to it, they still are a corporate company. Yes, that's why I'm saying half so price books. So, ultimately, you should support local bookstores. Yeah. But when your local bookstores doesn't sell any books that you want, okay, well, you don't we have are that many options. This. Yeah, we don't have options now, but we do home. Yes, yeah, yeah. When I'm home, I'll go buy yeah. books. I need to, I will be better, okay? Good, good. I just have, like, an addiction to needing books to, like, get to me the minute that I finish a no, book. And I get the only that. people who will do that is Amazon. I'm sorry. I get that. Literature needs to be made more accessible just in general. Yeah, because we're, like, like, we're supporting. No wonder people hate reading because it costs 20 bucks for per book. Yeah, like, it's hard. Well, I, I can't say that. I used to spend all my money on books, but. I know. Me too. <laughs> it's, like. Moral of the story, books need to be more accessible to everyone. Yes. And the reason they're not is because in the 19th century, book publishers were like, we can, we can make more money. Yeah. Let's use hardcovers. And support your local bookstores. Yes, do that. 
As I was saying, during the 19th century, publishers invented hardcover books specifically so that they could make more money because they knew wealthier people would want to have hardcover books because they could be like, ooh, look at me. Flop. I'm, I'm not a poor person. I'm not a peasant who reads paperback. <laughs> and it became like an actual thing, and that's why there's a huge difference between hardcover and paperback nowadays, and it's annoying. Two American brothers set up a publishing company which sent books to people by mail order, which slays. This became Random House Publishing, which still exists today. Wow. You think pigeons ever delivered a book i don't think so no okay and then penguin publishers came next which i love penguin yes penguin classics oh my god best thing ever um and they specifically marketed their books to be easily identifiable which obviously you can see that still is so yeah um i'm gonna hand it over to you okay because this kind of fits in the timescape of what's going on i think this is a good time and yeah i'm sending you guys over to jada's corner welcome to Jada's Corner. We're not going anywhere this week. We're going to hang out here. Well, so. you're hanging out in the library of your corner. Yeah. We're <laughs> hanging out in the library of my corner. Yeah. <laughs> we were going to talk just a little bit about the culture of book collecting. We both, I would say, are book lovers, as we can tell by our little talk there. Um, so I just thought it would be a fun little topic to get into. Book collecting became most common in Britain in the 1800s among men. And I thought this was really interesting, but book collecting was actually a really frowned upon hobby. Around this time, the term bibliomania was coined by Me. one of the book collectors. And they started calling themselves bibliomaniacs. Me. <laughs> And as we know, during this time, they didn't really understand mental illness. But today, we can actually identify the term bibliomania as a branch of obsessive compulsive disorder that involves... Quite literally me. (laughs) I have that and I love books. What are you talking about? It involves collecting and hoarding books to a point that social life or health is at risk. Do I have to say it? (laughs) Do I have to say that it's me? We know. It's okay. But in the 1800s, when the bibliomania was sweeping over the upper class individuals, they identified the symptoms as a frenzy for culling and hunting down first editions, rare copies, books of certain sizes, or printed on a specific paper. Okay, real. We were literally just talking about that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There are so many bizarre accounts of people genuinely fearing the bibliomaniacs, but one of the most famous is of Dr. Aloy Pitchler, who in 1869 was given the title of Extraordinary Librarian at the Imperial Public Library in St. Petersburg, Russia, which is a very high title that gives him a salary three times higher than the average librarian. Wow. Yeah, he's up there. A few months after Pitchler took his position at the library, they started realizing that they were missing an alarming amount of books from their collections. They reported strange behavior from Pitchler saying that he would drop books by the exit then run to put them back on the shelf. He refused to ever take off his long trench coat <laughs> real. and would leave the library multiple times a day. He's so real. Not I can't even blame him. Like, that's so real. <laughs> and in March of 1871, they found 4,500 books in Pitchler's possession. Oh my god. He stole all sorts of books and committed the largest library theft on record. I can't I know. I would do the same. Sorry. (laughs) That's kind of it for my little edition on books, but in our little flashback on our art heist episode. Yeah. But I also wanted to mention a really cool book collector that I was lucky enough to visit in Muncie, Indiana. That was my setup. (laughs) I was in Muncie, Indiana a while back to visit Bob Ross's recording studio. Okay. I that's my little, yeah, little flex there. I saw his easel, I saw a lot of his original copies. But he was his recording studio was neighbor to 
a neighbor to the Ball family home. You know, like Ball mason jars? Oh, okay. They made those. Okay. Yeah, and they were actually super avid book collectors, too, and we took a look at the book collection. I'm not I'm not going to be too specific on this because I have not fact-checked everything that I remember, and it was definitely a while back, but <laughs> they had this really cool, like, opening secret door type situation that led into, a like, a secret alcove of library it was really oh, that's sick cool. yeah it was really sick so i highly suggest if you're into that kind of stuff and even like library architecture i know you're kind of into architecture whatever a little bit yeah um muncie indiana such a fun place to visit if you want to see bob ross's and i i'm also including a picture of bob ross hiding behind a hedge on our instagram okay because it was really cute yeah yeah so that's it for jada's corner sending it back to zoe thank you i have two comments please one is that if you liked learning about book collecting you should read it's a very short little like i don't even think it's 100 pages a book it's called 84 sharing cross road and it's about like it's set up to read as like letters going back and forth between like an old lady and an old man that's so cute over the course of like 30 years and it's like at a time when you would have to like write letters to places and be like hey do you have this edition of this book and send it to me and so so like that's the whole thing like the woman just wants to collect all these books but she's like a character and then so is the man and so like it's the point where she's like friends with everyone who works at this place but it's they're in like england and she's in america and so it's like really really so cute cute. i'm adding it to my good read right now it's a really and then my second comment is that on the topic of visiting places relating to books mm-hmm. i visited salem massachusetts and you can actually go into the house that the house of seven gables was based on Ooh. i haven't actually to this day i have the book but i haven't actually read the house of seven gables but it's basically like themes on witchcraft and obviously because it's salem yeah and like something about this family who lived in this house being cursed and all this stuff and you get to like go into the actual house it was That's the only so cool, cool part of salem because Sam really? is unfortunately very disappointing. But yeah, the house is cool. I still haven't read the book, but maybe I will now. So backtracking a little bit to talk about historical books and important books in history. There have been a lot of books that have been published and made a very important impact, not just on individuals, but on history itself. For instance, as I mentioned, the Gutenberg Bible and the Tales of Genji. But we also have books such as Beowulf, which... Correct me if I'm wrong. My English major friend might correct me, but I believe it's a, is a, is a poem. It's not me. No, it's not you. Poem, question mark? I don't know. Abby, you did your entire tutorial <laughs> or whatever it is on Beowulf, so if you're listening, correct me. Then there's also the Canterbury Tales, stories like Faust. I could go on. But I want to mention two books that we just learned about today in Northern Renaissance art history because they were so interesting to me. And I have to make every episode about feminism. Sorry, I have to do it. So first off, we have the Malleus Maleficarum, but it was basically a handbook on how to spot and like eradicate witchcraft. So this piece of work was basically like a codification of folklore surrounding witches and it established an association between like evilness and witchcraft and women. So it was used to fuel the great European witch hunt, which killed thousands of innocent women. And then it was used to justify hatred against women in general. Then we have The Secrets of Women, which was the very first ever gynecological book, if you could even call it that really, because it was incredibly incredibly inaccurate. It stated that women had evil, like women were inherently evil and they had evil humors. Well, yeah, I am. And they had evil humors running through their bodies and it created this association of wickedness and dirtiness with women in menstrual cycles um and it basically did nothing for medicine and fueled hatred against women and it's probably today why that's we don't, trending right now obviously and it's probably today why we don't see 
women receiving adequate medical attention. Yeah. Which slays. Yeah. Wow, it always, it goes all the way back it to that. It always does. Yeah. It always does. My last segment is very important, and it relates to current social and political developments. So listen up. Everyone, put your listening ears on. Book banning has always been an issue. But right now, more than ever, our freedoms are quite literally under attack. We've seen this in Florida with Ron DeSantis's Don't Say Gay Bill, which is obviously built on prejudice thinly masked as a, quote, um, concern for the children. Mm. Do not be fooled. This is an attack on LGBTQ people and freedom of speech and freedom of the press. This bill, along with other bills trying to ban LGBTQ or racial content in libraries is built on the assertion that sexual and pornographic content doesn't belong in schools, but this belief that gayness is inherently sexual or predatory is a conservative tactic used to alienate LGBTQ people and try to denormalize these identities and make them seem sexually deviant. Sexual orientation is not inherently sexual and is something that children should be exposed to at a young age to foster self-acceptance and acceptance of others. Mm-hmm. And it is hypocritical to claim to be concerned about children being exposed to sexual sexually explicit content because have you seen the kind of stuff that like heterosexually oriented tv or tiktok or books or any kind of media like exposes children to yeah i was reading divergent at the like ripe age of 10 (laughs) you can't tell me that like that's better than having children read about like gay people existing yeah you know what i mean like yeah when children are exposed to sex all over like in all sorts of places and in environments such as like churches or like places where they should feel safe but instead these uh lawmakers are turning to an issue that's not an issue oh my god that's trending yes so yeah and along with not only is there an attack on books and literacy but also on trans people and these go hand in hand. It's not something to be ignored. So please open your eyes. Do not fall victim to the notion that conservatives are stupid and don't understand what they're doing because they very intentionally are trying to erase an entire group of marginalized people from society by whatever means possible. And they are absolutely doing it with the intention to hurt people and to hurt children and to ingrain hate within our society. Yeah. So do not for one minute think that they don't know exactly what they're doing. I needed to add this to the... It was very important to me to add that in, the little rant, the tangent. I was getting very frustrated while doing research. Mm-hmm. But some good news. A Last week, a judge in Texas ordered that all LGBTQ books that were removed from libraries be returned in schools. That's good. So that's some good news and surprising to come out of Texas. But Yeah. Yeah, if you want to do something other than, you know, like vote and donate and et cetera, then here are a list of books that have been banned that I have read that I think you have read you should read not just you but just generally the people listening we Mm -hmm. have Beloved and the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou Mm -hmm. A Farewell to Arms that's banned yeah which is crazy A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway what A Lesson Before Dying by Ernest Gaines which is an incredible book and everyone should read it their Eyes Are Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston and the 1619 Project, which everyone should read ever. Do not, like, like please, please read. It's about critical race theory and it needs to be taught in schools. I'm going crazy. We need to, like, <laughs> fix things. There's so many others on that list of banned books, including The Hunger Games, Twilight. <laughs> Get ready. Captain Underpants? What? Yeah. The moral of the story is that reading is knowledge and knowledge is power. Most of the knowledge that I have regarding social issues comes from books that I have read from Mm -hmm. childhood until now. So please do your part and educate yourself. Don't strip yourself of that power you could have. Yes, girl boss. (laughs) Educate yourselves. Read. Engage in books. Yes. Even if you don't like reading, I promise like you will find a way to like it. Oh my God, Listen to audiobooks. I don't know. Don't conform. 
don't conform. Get off TikTok and open a book. Yeah, it's <laughs> man. I have we have so many recommendations too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like I always recommend books during my episodes. So. Yeah. The question of the week. Ooh. Answer this question. It's very important. And it's, what is your all-time favorite book ever? You can have multiple <laughs> if you want. Mine, I have multiple, but I'm going to say it's The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I want to hear yours. So put it in the comments on Instagram or in the Q&A on Spotify. And I will try to read. If you recommend me good books, I will try to read them because I always am down to hear recommendations. What's yours? So I, I can't say I have one. But I have a couple that have a special place in my heart, like Carry On by Rainbow Rowell. And I'm pretty sure it's one of the banned books. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy book. It's Harry Potter, but gay. And it holds a special place in my heart because it was the book that really got me into reading. And I love it so much. I also love the entirety of the Sarah J. Mass universe. I'm sorry I'm basic, but... It's so good, and just Crescent City, I'm a big Crescent City girly. It might be my, I can't say that because I don't have a favorite. It, like, the whole SJM universe is so good, and I highly suggest it, even though it's a little bit cliche. It's it's such an enjoyable read. That's all that matters. Yeah, I think that I would say that those are the ones that have a special place in my heart. And I know I'm going to think of one as soon as we stop recording. I mean, any book is a good book as long as it's not Colleen Hoover. (laughs) period (laughs) yeah that's all i have for today thank you for listening do you have an idea for next week that you want to tease um i was thinking i don't i don't have a teaser but i was kind of thinking about doing a mothman episode okay but we'll see we could just do cryptids and do like a focus that would be kind of fun okay um so maybe maybe you'll see that next week maybe not we might change our minds who knows we i'm capable of changing (laughs) my mind every five seconds yeah but thanks for listening yeah thank you for listening and we'll see you next week we'll see you next week